Hi, Stephen here. Just before we start, I wanted to tell you about an amazing project that we've been talking about for a couple of years. As you probably know, it's often hard for creative people in high demand groups. The film documentary called Witness Underground is about the experience of a group of young Jehovah's Witnesses who started an indie record label while still members of the group and their stories of leaving and finding artistic expression in their new life. We've spoken to Scott Homan, the filmmaker, and Ryan Sutter, one of the artists featured in the documentary, and we hope to speak to other people involved in the project shortly. They've launched a Kickstarter campaign to get the film out there on the streaming apps, and they need our help. The link to their page is on our show notes, so check it out and see how you could support this important project. And now, the podcast. Hi, welcome to Cult Hackers. My name is Stephen and I'm very, very happy to say that we have a really interesting guest today. Um, We have Stephen Patterson. Stephen is a human rights lawyer with an interest in the intersection of faith, religious belief and the rule of law. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen Patterson. Yeah, good evening, Stephen. So I mentioned that you're a a human rights lawyer. Do you want to just um, expand upon that a little bit, please, Stephen? Tell us... um, sort of what you do and how this relates to uh, this, the topic of cults? Yeah, it's, it's been a little bit of a journey. I did a master's in international human rights law at the University of Essex uh, 10, 12 years ago. I studied over there. Uh, and uh, I have a faith background myself, so I'm a practicing Christian and I probably about five years ago, I came across a file, which was, it was an odd file. It was a transcript of an interview of a man, middle-aged man who had left this faith community, leaving behind his wife and children. And as I read through the interview, all sorts of red flags started going off and I realized that this had all the hallmarks of slavery or uh, modern day slavery perhaps um and and, but it also touched on my uh my faith background and and so as a human rights lawyer i started thinking about this and uh what could be done because nobody had done anything up until this point there had been uh numerous uh, media reports on, on practices and uh, quite sad things happening in this faith community, but that's where it stayed. Okay, so you you, you sort of heard about this story um, and that that tweaked your interest in this whole topic. Yeah, very much so because it, it touched on so many different aspects of uh, human rights. Uh, you know, rights that we all take for granted, like the the right to uh, you know protect your children to to be a family unity to be with your wife and children and the freedom of movement the freedom to express an opinion the freedom to manifest religious belief um the right to have different opinions and, and views uh then there was just a whole bunch of other the right to communicate with others outside um it, and then there was all these a whole lot of workplace exploitative practices that were seen to be occurring. And so those uh, this the story of this a man, uh, and he's the subject of a 
a documentary that's doing the rounds in different countries that came out of Australia, New Zealand. It was in August last year. Yeah, it, it just touched on so many different human rights. And, and so I, I looked at it through the lens as a human rights practitioner and trying to identify what could be done. Okay, so what was this group then? Are you able to, to mention the group? Yeah, so the group's name is Glorivale. Uh, certainly, if you Google that name in New Zealand or this part of the world, it, it lights up like a Christmas tree. Um, I I was abroad recently. I didn't actually take the effort to look it up. But you'll see that there's there's quite a lot of stories about them on YouTube, on, on the different uh, media platforms around the world. It's... I mean, just a, a Reader's Digest synopsis, it's, it's a faith community that started 50-odd years ago um, and it's, has about 600 current members, about maybe 150, 200 have left, and it's primarily made up, I think, of about eight, ten main family trees, if you will. Um, they practice a belief that sort of stems out of what's known as the Anabaptist movement of 500 years ago from Swingley and Zurich. Um, so they've, they've got some quite different views, perhaps, of their mainstream Christianity, but a lot of it's not too far removed. Certainly for, on a theoretical academic basis, that is the case. In practice, quite different. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so Anabaptism um, is something that I've stumbled across doing a bit of research into uh, the sort of roots of groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, which is the group that I was raised in. Um, and I recognize right. an awful lot, actually, about that, uh, the doctrine, the doctrines and um, and ideas that, that are around that. So I think... Um, uh the way of life is quite different I'll, i do want to talk a little bit about that um in a moment but the beliefs around um you know the end times and the end of the world and um things you can and can't do and all of that i think there's there's a lot of crossover there lots of things i recognize but they look very different don't they so um i understand we interviewed um or i interviewed anchor uh richter um going back a few months ago and um, this is a group that she talks about in her book do you want to just describe the the look and the way of life for for these uh the people of yeah. this group yeah so in this group uh we went on a judicial view so that's where the chief judge of the employment court uh took counsel uh for the defendants Glorval and the crown and for the plaintiffs being ourselves uh for a site visit and we saw two-year-olds three-year-olds maybe they're five i'm not sure quite what age uh young girls dressed in a blue dress going all the way down to the ankles uh quite a plain dress maybe a little white uh piece around the neckline and I think that's probably all that they had. And then that dress they have for life. So obviously, and at some point, probably in their teenage years, they then are obligated to wear a scarf, a head covering. But they are trained from 
birth effectively from what they see their first image of a woman a mother their mother other woman is this blue dress and at some point in those first few years they take put it on and they never take it off so to say um that's their dress for life except for when they get married i think or some special occasions they might have a pink version but yep that's that and the same for the boys so the boys have a a blue shirt a blue trousers and boots uh and that's their uniform for life too now they have slightly changed one or two garments i think you know jackets and bits and pieces but essentially that's what it is and and uh, the sort of beliefs um very sort of fundamentalist i guess and uh, sticking to yeah the so, that's right so they you know, believe in the Bible. They believe in the King James version of the Bible. Uh, they have then created their own rule book based on it. And that rule book is the leader's interpretation of the Bible. And the leaders are the sole arbiters of uh, what the Bible means. We had a trial. We've had two trials. And, and the last one was a 10-week trial spanning seven months in the employment court. Um, and we got to look at all the aspects of power and control in this group. And a question was asked of one of Glorvale's witnesses, are you free to believe something that's in the Bible, which is different from what the shepherds have determined the Bible to mean? Are you free to believe that and stand the community? And the answer is no. So there's no individual belief as such um it's it's a corporate belief and it's a corporate belief as determined by the leaders there is no room for individual critical thinking own opinions expressing those opinions having questions having doubts without a whole lot of risk occurring for that person so who, who decides this? So this is the the interpretation of this is the... a, yeah this is decided by the shepherds, uh, which you might say are like elders in a church, mm -hmm. uh, headed led by the overseeing shepherd, which is now they Gorovel believe that the overseeing shepherd uh, sits in the in the palm of God. He is one of the seven stars, I think, referred to in Revelation, the Book of Revelation in the Bible. So he is the arbiter of a person's salvation he must give an account to god for his flock it's this incredibly powerful position mm. and is this the individual that that started the group or is this has this been handed down well no so so we're we're on to leader number three so the first leader who founded it, it um and actually it might be good to go back and look at that that group a bit um hopeful christian and his name before that was neville cooper an australian who came to new zealand as an itinerant preacher minister and he took over what was known as a new life church so partly pentecostal maybe it's quite pentecostal i'm not entirely sure mm -hmm. uh in in a town in a town called uh rangiora north of christchurch in the south island of new zealand and so it was an existing church and he took it over um and then they moved 
30, 40, 30 kilometres, maybe 40 kilometres into the country, but still on an intersection of a couple of main roads, crisscrossing a couple of rural North Canterbury towns, and, and people were living in the community. So he was the first one. Now, he went to jail for serious sexual offending. The Chief Justice of New Zealand, um, I'm not sure, can't remember the exact words he used, but basically... Uh, Justice Eichelborn, he was, Neville Cooper, hopeful Christian, was beyond rehabilitation. Um, he was, I think, sentenced to seven years in jail. He served 11 months, which is a question, story in its own right. Um, he died, I think, in 19, hmm, 1995, maybe. The next leader was Howard Temple. Howard Temple is still the notional overseeing shepherd, but he is, uh, according to the papers reported, he is up on charges uh, for also for sexual offending, and he um, is not permitted in the community under bail conditions. And so they have another acting overseeing shepherd. His name is Stephen Stanfast. Wow. So that that's really interesting. Um, so we have a... Mm. A sort of history of of abuse um, within yeah the leadership yeah and 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 the way the way I look at it is you know culture organizational culture business culture it's led from the top the mm. the leader sets the tone of the place so if the two leaders that they've had have either been convicted or are charged with sexual offending it's perhaps no wonder that. Uh, this community has so many problems than it does have. So, for example, and I know we're sort of deviating a bit here, but uh, the police conducted an operation called Operation Minneapolis uh, two years ago, or a year ago. I lost track on the timeline there. And they found, according to the statistics, something like 70% of teenage boys were either perpetrators or victims of sexual abuse. And children make up the bulk of the population. I don't know what the number is, but I think out of the 600, you know, 350 uh, teenagers or younger. Well, so I was, was, my next question really was, um, once we get a background of, of the group and who they are is, you know, what's, what's the problem with them? What, what's the concern? And obviously that's one big one. Um, yeah, that's a, yeah, that, that's definitely one. I mean, another one, obviously, is exploitation of yeah. workers. So we've had two trials. We had our first trial called the uh, Courage Trial uh, last year, and that was a two-week trial. And these were three young men uh, who alleged that they were employees and not volunteers. So the government had conducted an investigation um, and determined that they were employee uh, volunteers, or not not that they were volunteers, that, that they were not workers, not employees. Okay. And so we challenged that in the employment court, and the court found that they went to work from the age of six years. So they worked, started work at six years of age, uh, working in sphagnum moss out in the fields, uh, working in some sort of the factories connected with it doing farm work but this the work was more than incidental so this wasn't work such that a normal 
schoolboy might do helping mum and dad on the farm. This was long hours um, and a work gang situation, uh, weekends, all day sort of thing. They were working long, long hours on top of their school hours. And then at school, at probably the age of 14, they were uh, moved into a transition to work program. But actually, it was, in reality, a placement in full-time work under the guise of some sort of work experience training. And then they were assigned where they would work, um, and that was that. There was no choice about what they could study. There was no choice about where they'd go to work. And sometimes they gave evidence of working 60-hour weeks on, on average, and sometimes they would work 72 hours nonstop right. to fulfill a production order. And the court found that they were employees. The court found that um, a child can be in an employment relationship, even from the age of six years. Even if the actions of certain individuals in the community directing these uh, boys might amount to some form of criminal offending, and that would obviously be for an, a different court to, to consider, that did not preclude an employment court um, providing remedies for people in slavery and slave-like conditions. Mm. So that was quite powerful. Yeah, that's mm. really interesting. So um, in a way, there was a risk that they'd kind of fall between the cracks there of, of mm. different legal um, strictures, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there was always the risk, you know, that the evidence was insufficient for a criminal prosecution and that might still be the case and maybe there is no prosecution that's not mm. for us where that's for the police if 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 appropriate um based on the evidence but the in the employment court it's, it's the lower threshold it's a balance of probabilities but threshold argue, and, and we obviously met it yeah i guess the argument um that you had to overcome was you know if the children they can't really be employed and if they're not being employed then you can't take them to court in an employment situation so i guess that that was the win that you were able to demonstrate that even though they yeah. perhaps were too young they were still employed yeah they, and and what the court found was you know for employment there had to be uh a bargain a, a contract effectively and and what what the boys got in return they got accommodation they got the necessities of life they got food they got clothing mm. um they, you know, and you might say that's not exactly adequate compensation, but it was the deal. They went to work. That's what they got back. Um, I suppose that was enough to then be able to say, yes, this is employment. So so you yeah. um, you used employment rules and laws to to, to score a win. That's really, really interesting. Um, we, we've talked quite a lot about the way that's, many of these groups use free labor so they're registered charities often and they use free labor to do all of their activities whether that be proselytizing or working in factories or whatever so yeah that that's yeah. again pretty par for the course i think yeah look uh, perhaps i should also just expand a little bit on Glorville. so Glorville uh, is situated in the southern alps of new zealand it's geographically incredibly remote uh there is next to no cell phone coverage 
where they're situated. It's maybe what two at one and a half hours uh, first part of a gravel road from the nearest town. Uh, Dorval controls their own transport fleet, so people, you know, if you want to get out, it's uh, quite an arduous journey, a complicated journey to get out, even if you've got the courage to do it. Um, Gorval operates quite a number of businesses. It's a large financial enterprise. It's got dairy farms, which is quite prosperous in New Zealand at the moment. It's got a beekeeping factory. It's got a meal plant that produces pet foods and things for the European markets. Um, they've been involved in oil exploration. Wow. Uh, they've got a school there they've got preschools they had a regional not regional but they had a an airline uh that did flights and some commercial activities around the south island um it, they've got an airstrip that on the not that it looks very tidy but in the property um yeah that, that you know they're wow. they're busy people um there's a lot of money so that's one aspect of it. I guess the other part I wanted just to elaborate on Rural before we sort of carry on the discussion is their business model, if you like, their, their organisational model is predicated on having children, lots of children. So one of their rules is uh, procreation is mandated, contraception is prohibited. Young mothers are expected to have children as soon as biologically possible and to continue having them until God closes the womb. So we have families with 10, 12 children. What Glorivale have been very adept at is structuring their financial and legal affairs to take advantage of the assistance of the state for mothers with children. So... Under our uh, financial incentive for young mothers or mothers, um, having 12 children and next to or very, very little income makes a person entitled to significant government financial assistance. In Glorabay, we're getting like $5 million a year from the government for having all these children. Uh, well, not just for the, having the children, but also for the the, the uh, school and the preschool and the midwifery and all those associated with it. And the income generated by the men working in the commercial endeavours and enterprises is used to build up the equity and the asset pool of the community. And all of this is under the umbrella of a charitable trust, well, the businesses are. And so this is a community not paying tax, receiving substantial government assistance um, and people are, in my opinion, living in servitude. Yeah, I was going to say all these children, um, if they're going to work at six, you know, it's not long before they're, they're also contributing to the workforce. So there's another. That's year. right. Yep. Mm. Yep. Wow. That, that's, that sounds really, um, really oppressive. And that's, I think the worst example I've, scene um of this sort of thing happening hi i'm tracy and i'm sharon and we are feet of clay confessions of the cult sisters 
So way back in the 1970s, we became radical Christians in the Jesus movement. We were promoted to leadership in the crazy cult commune, Last Days Ministries, founded by none other than Christian music megastar, Keith Green. Now we're sharing our decades-long escape from the trauma and abuse of extreme Christianity. We tell our own stories and also invite guests to talk about fundamentalism, purity culture, arranged marriages, child abuse, misogyny, homophobia, (laughs) power-hungry patriarchy, and much more. Much, much more. So join us as we share our journey of healing and humor and how we finally found peace and joy on the other side. Feet of Clay, Confessions of the Cult Sisters, wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know it's estimated that there are over 3 million podcasts currently out there? So trying to get noticed and grow listeners is really hard. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not tell a friend about it? We can be found on all the podcast apps. So please tell them to search for Cult Hackers. In fact, why not pause the show right here and do it now? You can find the pod link on our show notes. So you can just copy and paste it into a message or share it using your app. Could you talk a little bit about some of the the people that leave and, and their experience? I guess you've spoken to some of those people. That's kind of the initial prompt to all of this. Could you talk a little bit about their experience? Yeah, look, I, I've actually interviewed more people living inside the community than outside. Um, I'm sure that is uh, in itself a, a difficult statement for the leaders to get their head around how that could be. Um, because compliant followers would not, should not be talking to people like me. And so I would meet people in interesting places. Obviously, I won't talk about that here. What I would say is one particular example early on, and it set the tone for what I was to come across. I was talking to a a man. I was in my standing by, sitting in my car. He was beside the car and side of the road, and we were chatting away. We'd arrange, made arrangements to meet, and we could hear a vehicle approaching, maybe one to two kilometers in the distance. And the man looked up and he said, "It's one of the leaders." He gave the leader's name, and the sheer horror on his face. And he, with some certain things that he had with him, he jumped into the bush in terror, abject terror. And I I don't know why, but I managed to take some photographs of the whole thing transpiring. And I look at these photos and then, you know, eventually he's completely hidden in the bush as this car approaches and then leaves, I guess. And I... Ask myself, how does a middle-aged man in a professional occupation live in such fear of another human being? And, of course, there had to be something behind that. You know, why? That, that sh- a healthy faith community, nobody should have to do that. And so then you know all is not well. Yeah, that's that's shocking. So where where are we now then with this group? They Obviously, they're still... Yeah, so we still... so we did we had a, we had a second trial uh, that finished in end of March of this year, and with the judgment, I think came out in early July. I just think when I got back from Europe, and 
That was brought by six uh, women, mostly younger women, but and and, and a middle aged woman, and they they uh, asked the court to determine whether they were also employees. And the court said, yes, they were. In fact, when I look through the, the chief judge's uh, decision, in my opinion, it would support a finding of servitude. Uh, she, she found that these women were consigned uh, at birth to this life. So their life was start work at six or seven, helping mum clean, cook, doing those sorts of things. And then as you get older, you do more hours before and after school, getting up at two or three in the morning to start baking bread or whatever you were doing in the kitchen. And then at 14, being yanked out of school and put on a team, a, a, a rostered team that might do cleaning or cooking or sewing, in an industrial size operation, so we're talking tens of thousands or ten thousand, you know, meals a week sort of thing or more, right. or, or items of laundry to be washed and ironed, and then at an appropriate time, if and when the leaders determined they would uh, find you a man, you would get married. That was your lot in life. And as I said, the chief judge found, you know, that was consigned to them by virtue of being born there and by virtue of being born a female. There was no choice. So, you know, they were taught that from a young age, you obey the leaders. They saw what happened to those who did not obey those leaders. You know, uh, boys are stood on stage and publicly shamed for wetting themselves at night or uh denied food people were denied food for days on end for misdemeanors so what sanctions are they receiving for these um for, the, for these actions well so at this stage the court have ruled that they were employees just as they did in the uh, previous earlier trial in the courage trial um now we're at the stage of determining well who is the employer because Glorval have an incredibly complex legal and financial structure. So they have a whole bunch of businesses. Some are run through a business partnership. Some are run as limited liability companies. Some are run under the guise of a trust. Property is owned by a, a charitable trust. Uh, and, yeah, so the question is, is, who do you enforce this judgment against in terms of their employment entitlements of lot for um, compensation for wages and, and other things? So we don't know yet. Um, I was going to say that there should be some back pay at very least for these people who have been doing all this. Work. There's an awful lot of pay at stake here for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and for all, not just for the six female plaintiffs and the three male plaintiffs, uh, but all others who had the similar facts to them. And and that's mostly everybody who's left Glorivale has had to work the same way. So yeah. it'll be hard for Glorivale to deny their claim. So these six uh, these six people that have brought this case, are they still a member of the community or have they left the, the community? They've all left, yeah. Right. So they've left, some have left a few years ago and some in the last year. Right, so that, I mean, I, I guess you really can't talk to that, but it's just a, as a passing thought, um, these people must be quite highly traumatized and um oh yeah. absolutely you know i 
I've worked with people when I've met them in the community. I, I mean, I just started on this, what, four years ago, and some of those are out. Um, I think it's going to take quite some time. Uh, and some for some of them, the trauma will be greater than others. Yeah. And, you know, the trauma could be from sexual offending, being a victim of sexual offending, being the perpetrator of sexual offending within the norms of a community where that was okay. Disobeying the leaders was the cardinal sin. That being in possession of a cell phone was a worse infraction than unconsented sexual connection with another. That was the norms that these boys were raised in, which obviously is totally opposite to our societal norms and our rules of our land. Yeah. Yeah, um, that, that's that's terrible. Um, and I guess it's, again, it's typical of, of organisations that have such a, religious organisations particularly, that have such a, a fetishization of, of sex and... Um, you know restrictions on on sex and so on they seem to have these uh behaviors that that are just completely unacceptable um yeah and i and I go back to my earlier comment you know this came from the top yeah the founder was a convicted sex offender yeah his successor is up on charges yeah absolutely so um so it sounds like you've you've been having your hands full really uh dealing with this particular case um have you what's your sort of wider thoughts around uh this balance between religious freedom and um protecting the individual have, have you got any sort of wider thoughts about how we get that balance right yeah how do we get that balance right <laughs> That's a thorny question, and it's probably why governments are reluctant to intervene here. Yes. So, you know, if we look at, let's say, have a look at uh, human rights. So, we, you know, we've got the right to religious belief and, and expression of opinion and the right to receive information and to impart information. So those are those are individual rights, uh, but there's also a right to manifest religious belief and and in community with others. So rights are not absolute. So uh, you know, for, uh, the obvious one is a, a religious group cannot form and say, "Well, we have the right to believe in child sacrifice," for example, um, which might have been practiced in some cultures recorded in the Old Testament of the Bible. You know, for example. So we so we go. No, there are limits, and those limits are usually what's justified in a free and democratic society and prescribed by law. So, and and one of those limits would be is you can exercise your human rights, but they are subject to the laws of the land. And and so in their pilgrim decision, the the last trial, the the chief judge, you know, said that that the right to manifest religious. Uh, belief is still subject to the laws of land, including employment laws. So that would be one way of looking at it. Another way is um, your right to manifest your religious belief should not be at the expense of my right to my belief. You know, you can't yeah. exercise your rights and then 
uh, nullify every other person's right or some other person's right in the process. So there has to be limits. And I guess that's the real question is, is where are those justifiable limits? And what we're doing, so we have a case running in the Human Rights Court in New Zealand, is to ask the court, well, where are those limits? How far can a religious community or faith community go in exercising its beliefs and limit the human rights of its members? So does that mean a faith community can limit the human right of its members to freedom of movement? So in other words, can we constrain, can a faith community constrain its members from actually physically coming and going? Can it constrain its members from talking to any person? So freedom of, of information, communication. Can, can a faith community interfere in a family, in a family life? So going back to the very beginning, I talked about uh, the man I met and the inter transcript of his interview uh, where he was forced to abandon his wife and children. So that's an interference in the family. Can a, can a faith community, is a faith community permitted to do that? So one, one way I think I'd look at that might be, I don't think it can, and I don't think it can under law. So if we look at the European Convention of Human Rights, Article 8, interference uh, or protection of family and, and private communications and family life and home life. So I, I, I live in New Zealand, so I'm not familiar with the exact words, but in that sort of area. Yep. Under the European Convention of Human Rights, the state has an obligation not to interfere. That's pretty clear. It also has a positive, so that's a negative obligation, but also the state also has a positive obligation, and that is to take measures to stop others interfering in that right. We don't have that protection in New Zealand. So we have protection in respect of communications and private information, but we don't have protections in respect of family life and um, home life. Well, certainly not to that same extent that you have in Europe. So where that makes becomes quite relevant is in the area of shunning. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Because shunning shunning at its core is an interference in the family life. Yeah. It's a separating, it's a tearing apart of a family unit. And to my mind, that engages Article 8 of the European Convention of Human Rights. Now, that's not the state doing it. But the question I'd be asking is, what steps have the state taken mm -hmm. to stop others interfering in that right? That's really interesting. Uh, and then it gets harder because, well, what steps can the state do? Can the states, can the state rather, go to, for example, Jehovah's Witness or Plymouth Brethren, exclusive Brethren, mm -hmm. or if Glorivale was mm -hmm. hidden away somewhere in, in the UK, I don't know where that would, remote place might be, but say an, an island off the top of Scotland somewhere, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Could the UK government, could they go in and say, oh, you can't do that, you can't practice shunning because it's you are violating, well, if we don't take steps, we'll be violating Article 8 the European Convention of Human Rights. Now, I'm not familiar with uh, 
case law in the in the uh, European Court of Human Rights in this area. But just in, in general principles, that's what I'd be looking at. Right. Uh, there's, there's a similar protection in the uh, one of the treaties that came out of the UN Charter. So that's the ICCPR, the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, Article 17. And that's in a similar vein, the non-interference in the family. And, you know, maybe there is um, a, a legislative hole here in terms of protections in that area. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, there's some very egregious cases in relation to shunning, um, particularly for young uh, people. So if you're so Jehovah's Witnesses baptize people um, anywhere between eight and adulthood really so sometimes they're quite young when they're baptized and at that point you come under the rule of the the elders or the authority of the congregation really in terms of you can be punished um for doing things that are considered to be wrong um as soon as you're baptized so um yeah there's there's some cases where children really are being shunned or are being um isolated by these practices um obviously some are less obvious so but i think some cases like that could um that's really interesting that that would be the a possible avenue to go down and, and test whether the the government has a responsibility to protect uh that that individual from from those sorts of practices yeah i i, I... Absolutely. I mean, just in that example you talked about, I, I think it would also engage the CRC, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, you know, what's mm. in the best interest of the child. And look, I'm not familiar with UK law uh, or courts, rather, in their decisions, but uh, in New Zealand, the, the courts will uh, cite reference to that convention and the rights of the child, um, certainly take that into consideration. Yeah, that's um, that's very interesting. Um, the UK government, the the Conservative Party, are keen to, uh, or some of the Conservative Party who are currently in power, are keen to take the UK out of the European Convention of Human Rights, which is um, is fairly terrifying, I think. But that's um, that's a political question. But I suppose as long as it's part of the the law, then that's an avenue to go down. We also have um, coercive control laws, so there are laws that um, are used to protect particularly women from abusive relationships. So where a partner is is abusing and coercively controlling a partner, that they, they, there are laws to protect uh, the, the partner for um, against those sorts of actions. And, and one of the things that um, we spoke to Alexandra Stein recently about this and um, they're very keen at the Family Survival Trust to uh, encourage the government to extend that from just intimate relationships to any relationship, you know, as, as she makes the point, um, what's the difference, you know, is the same abuse. So, yeah, I yeah. think that's an area that that um, there's quite a lot of interest to try. And, um, and I know some of the other things that have happened in Europe, I think in Norway, is, um, is the removal of of a sort of status so different countries have different 
types of arrangements but i think in norway there's like a an approved religious status if you like a bit like a registered charity i guess um and i think yeah. one of the first things that that we would like to do is is to remove charitable status from organizations that practice some of these abusive things um you know you, you mm. have the ridiculous situation where an individual might be being shunned by their family um and because they're a taxpayer essentially they're helping to contribute to the um the organization that are doing these these things to them so yeah that's that's another area of interest actually i i'd just like to pick up on that so just bear with me but look i i'm not a, a cult expert uh at all um what I have observed, though, with Glorabelle, and, and I'm sure your listeners and, and yourself will probably be in a far uh, better position than myself to uh, validate it or, or and critique it, um, so please do. But from what I've observed with Glorabelle, there are several pillars that are essential to the cult being formed and operating and continuing. So the first pillar I look at is, well, it needs people. It needs money, and then it also needs rules and some kind of structure. And when I say rules, structure, you could perhaps throw ideology in there as well. Glorval started out, when it came to people, it went around and it proselytised. And it typically went after those perhaps somewhat on the margin society, not exclusively, but so it might pick up a solo mum, it might pick up a backpacker traveling the world on an overseas experience. Um, it might pick up spiritual seekers. And so it's that's how it formed the, look, it took over a church, but that's essentially how it formed the, the, the first nucleus of its members. And, but obviously a group also needs money. So it, uh, it encouraged the members to bring their income from their outside jobs into the community and hand it over. It um, it also was quite clever. It encouraged people to hand over their all of their assets and their inheritances. And the founder went one stage further. He, by accident or design, or I'll leave that to people to speculate, he arranged for his attractive daughters to marry the sons of a wealthy farm owner in the area for which they then acquired the property. So now we've got money. And the third area is, well, it needs a structure of beliefs. And, and so the beliefs started of evolving. They started having rules. So, so initially everybody lived in their own house or house on the property. Um, they just handed in their money at the end of the week or, payday um they wore their own clothes but then they started you know they had religious teachings and all the rest i likened that to the first phase then when they moved into the southern alps of new zealand where they are now things look quite different so they've moved from proselytizing to having uh recruitment by birth internal birth so they their membership grew from their own families they don't they did not proselytize anymore so it's all now internal when it came to money they're now getting money from the government on the working for families child support that's this these are these millions of dollars coming in uh 
and all the money is generated from their own businesses. So people aren't going out in the community doing their own thing. It's all controlled. And then they've now formalised their beliefs into a document called What We Believe. They've got their own rules. Everybody lives together in a hostel, so you don't have your own houses. Everybody wears the same uniform, so you don't have your own clothes. There's a common purse, and so nobody has their own money, and so on. So you Now, the reason I mention all of that as context is because in dealing with Gruber, what we've had to look at is, okay, so what are the enablers here that enable this community to uh, be formed, to operate, and to continue? And what can and are those enablers all complying with the law of the land? So you mentioned the Norwegian example about the Charities Commission. So that might be one enabler. The businesses are operating under a charitable trust. Can we attack the charitable trust? And obviously in Norway, they've had a look at that maybe. And in New Zealand, we are continuing to plug away at the government. The government have been quite slow slow in coming to this. Um, so that's one area. Another area in Glorvale is the school, the children. So I mentioned before there's hundreds of young children. They're all going to a school. Yeah. And because they go to a school, that means Glorvale can control what they're taught, what they believe. It reinforces their doctrines and so on. So the question we have is, is the Glorvale school operating in accordance with New Zealand law? Are there any issues with it? And so some former teachers and some former pupils have complained. They've complained to regulatory authorities who deal with teachers and the running of schools. And that led to, I think, the first principal being removed by order of the Ministry of Education because... He had signed off the practicing certificate of a teacher who was convicted of sexual abuse, for example. Hmm. And so it goes on. So you could look at, you know, so the school is one of the uh, the organisations that underpins Glorivale, and we, we're challenging that. We're challenging their employment practices. That's another pillar. But you all go around and say, well, what other enablers are there? So a community like that doesn't exist unless there's a bank there somewhere. So what's the bank's obligations? Mm -hmm. So the bank in New Zealand that, and it's called, it is actually the Bank of New Zealand, BNZ, uh, they announced they were going to withdraw banking services from Glorivale because Glorivale was breaching its human rights and they, uh, under their corporate social responsibility policies and, and responsibilities as a bank, um, could not be complicit in that as an enabler. So that's currently before the courts uh, because Gorova have challenged that decision and that's, that's current ongoing. Mm. So that's another uh, potential enabler. You know, another one will be the government. So, you know, what does the government know? And what are they doing in terms of their state duties under international law where a state has treaties? So most countries have signed these various treaties. Um, they could be international labour organisation treaties dealing with you know, exploitative practices. They could be the civil and political rights uh, covenant of the UN. So that, you know, what 
so the state can also be an enabler through its failure to act and the breaching its duties and to protect the citizen. I mean, the primary duty of the state is to protect the citizen. So that's another potential enabler. Um, businesses who buy from these communities that are engaged in coercive practices and breaching human rights might fall foul of some other international legal instruments. So this is now another uh, area called the OECD. So if we look at human rights as an ecosystem, there is the ILO that deals with labor laws. We've got the UN with its various treaties. And then a third area is the OECD. And they've got one on multinational uh, guidelines for multinational business enterprises, including uh, a large section on human rights. And that has a, has a claim process. It's a kind of an inquisitorial complaint process. And so... You know, companies engaging with these groups might run into risk, a zone of legal risk in respect of that. So I, the, the way we look at Glorival is um, it's usually, it's not going to be one thing in yeah. itself that unravels it. It's going to be slowly chipping away at all of these supporting structures and organisations, individuals, whatever, that enables them to continue that's really interesting it's sort of how do you eat an elephant tactic isn't it um one, <laughs> one bite at a time one bite at a time yeah exactly. exactly yeah that's really interesting and um i think really good advice for any of us who are thinking about how to um approach some of these issues um what what would you say um would it be possible for glory vale let's use those that group as as the example would it be possible for them to um get their house in order could you ever see a time if they um, acknowledged the problems that they could they could change their ways and um and and be left alone what, what do you think oh look i think my views vacillate over time yeah, okay. you know there are days when i think it's beyond redemption um and there are other days, but then I recognise there are people that have been there 50, 55 years. Uh, they are now in their 70s, 80s. You know, they where, where would they go? Um, you know, they would be effectively refugees in their own country in their 70s. You know, that's, I don't think that's fair on them, even if they have made that choice. You know, th those in that age bracket have chosen to join rather than those that have been born there. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not too sure. If it was to be rehabilitated, it would take a lot of work. It would take, uh, yeah, a lot of work by a lot of government and private sector organizations and i say private sector because uh the government are part of the problem so asking the person who or organizations who have been contributing to the problem as an enabler to then fix the mess is somewhat problematic and you've got 50 years of indoctrination you have to unpack you know uh, probably i, I want to just touch on that because that's why it's so hard that's why these groups are so hard so Glorival, the best way I could describe it is if you imagine two circles, you've got a member on one side and the leader on the other. And if you draw a line over the top from the member to the leader, the member has faith in the leader that um, 
they are appointed by God. They they, uh, represent God for them. And in return, the member, if you like, draw a line back to the, sorry, leader draws a line back to the member, the leader provides them the rules for living. And in return, the, the member then says, okay, I'm going to obey you. Um, the spiritual doctrines of unity and I'm going to have absolute obedience to what you say and tell me to do. And as part of that bargain, that contract, if you're unofficial, informal contract, the leader assures them of their salvation. That's the deal going here. The problem with that deal is the moment you start saying, I'm no longer going to obey you, I've got questions about your decision or I've got a different belief, I've broken that circle. And what's at stake? My soul. My soul was now imperiled. I could go to hell. That paradigm, that, that circular deal that's going on between the member of that community and the leader is what traps them in there. It's like a it's like a prison in their brain. It's a psychological chain that holds them there. When you talk about reforming, you can reform all the practical things you like, but how do you reform that going on in the head? Because if you don't, what have you really done? You know, if they if if you change all the practical rules of how they do things, and the member still believes that that leader holds the keys to their salvation um it will just morph itself into some other manifestation of how they live that out yeah i I think that's right and i've never so far i haven't seen a case where an organization like that a cultic group using coercive control has been able to rehabilitate because it's just um it it means turning your back on so many of the things that were part of of that belief system and that you were indoctrinated into it's very very difficult um so yeah i think it's it's hard to imagine i think about the the religion that i was born into jehovah's witnesses and i think what would what would make it okay and actually there's there's probably a handful of things that's all that that you'd want to see changed including shunning and some of the the medical uh things around blood transfusion and um, obviously the way they handle um, cases of sexual abuse and so on. There's, there's a, there's a bit of a shopping list, but it, it wouldn't be, it's not a huge list in many respects, but I, even then I can't see how those things could be turned around. You know, Um, they, they've, they've prophesied the end of the world on numerous occasions and it hasn't happened yet. Um, But they still, carry on saying armageddon is around the corner you know it's 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 in their genes really you know (laughs) yeah grover have quite a good one so they have they practice and in fact i grew up with this so my father i remember him saying this you know once in church as a young boy you know a brother does not take another brother to court yeah so when I turned up into your glory, in fact, I heard a lot of things I recognised from my youth. So I just thought, why do I know this? <laughs> so they teach and they at their communal dining table this that, that Bible verse, uh, which is problematic because if you think, oh, no, sorry, if you have just experienced somebody 
um, sexually violating you, what do you do? Well, you can't go to the police. I mean, yeah, you don't have a phone and you don't have a vehicle to get in. And but even if you could do all those things, well, how would you do that? Because you're going to be breaking what they've taught. So, Gorville then have come up with a whole series of new policies. Like, you know, if these things happen, you go to the police. If this happens, we don't all this. But at the same time, they still preach you don't go to take another brother to court. So, if you're sitting there at the dining table. And you hear this from the overseeing shepherd and you see the written policy, which one are you going to follow? Mm. You're going to follow the one that you were born with, the one that was knocked into you from two years old, the one that you watched people being publicly berated, physically assaulted, uh, shamed, psychologically shamed for breaking. You're going to follow the rules that come from that, not the written paper. Because you know that the written one is just uh, for government appetite. And the sad thing is the government agencies look at this and say, well, well they've got written policies. Right. It's all good. Yeah. They haven't grasped hmm. where the real intent lies. Absolutely. There's a nod and a wink um, and a, uh, yeah, an often unspoken, but sometimes actually spoken um, instruction that is – is one thing for the the flock um and a different thing for uh for the for the rules for the lawmakers yeah absolutely yeah mm. Stephen, i've absolutely been fascinated talking to you um and i think you know a lot of our listeners are interested in activism they do activism and so on and i think there's so many really interesting and important ideas uh you've given us some signposts to to point to so um I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for coming on the Court Hackers podcast, Stephen Patterson. Hey, Stephen. It's been nice talking with you this morning. <laughs> <laughs>